Welcome to the Big Tent Ideas podcast, where today we have the second in the series from Theo Clark, the founder and chief executive of the Coalition for Global Prosperity. It's a series in which she explores what that favourite catchphrase of politicians, Global Britain, actually means. Before we start, I'd just like to let you know that this year's Big Tent Ideas Festival will take place on the 15th of June at Mudchute Farm on the Isle of Dogs. Keep your eye on our website at bigtent.org.uk to find out how you can buy a ticket. Follow us and tweet us at Big Tent Ideas. And please rate us if you get a second. It makes it easier for others to find us. Now, here's Theo. I'm thrilled to be joined by Lieutenant General Phil Jones, who has had a fascinating career in the British military. He was the former military attaché in Washington during President Obama's presidency, and Phil has served in both NATO and at the United Nations. And he's got over 36 years' experience in the British Army, including three years in Afghanistan. So Phil has seen for himself Britain's footprint around the world and what the reality of global Britain is. And having retired from the army two years ago, Phil departed as Lieutenant General and now runs an ethical security consultancy firm. So welcome, Phil, and thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to start by asking you, given your background in the military, about your views on the government's new focus on global Britain. So do you think it's just a slogan or is this actually a crucial realignment of Britain's place in the world? Uh, well, well, thanks, Theo. And um, us military officers, particularly career officers, are international by design. So you kind of expect me to have great sympathy um, with the global Britain ethos. And not for a moment do I think it's a mere slogan. I think it's the way we behave, the way we act. And I can tell you as someone who's had a lifetime experience of working on difficult things in difficult places, we are actually very good at being a global nation. And in all humility, I'd say we're good for the world and the world is extremely good for us. And let me just give you a couple of reasons why. Um, we're highly collaborative in the globe. We really are. We're international to the soles of our feet. Um, our outlook is outward by default. And we almost always think of others before ourselves. We're conveners, planners, organisers and all those sort of things. We're good team players and our values are strong. And... In amongst the family of nations, we're one of those nations that still has moral courage, and that's really important and often in short supply in the international arena. That's so important. And I've been thinking a lot about how Britain projects ourselves around the world, but particularly about our values. And what do you think that these are? And specifically, how can Britain be most effective in promoting our values overseas? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and look, I'd come at this by saying that I think that they're really simple and important things such as a pervasive sense of fairness um, uh, and transparency. Um, all those sort of things are hugely respected and valued. The absence of corruption. Um, as an anecdote here, I was chatting to a Romanian taxi driver in Hereford who was telling me how boring some parts of his life were. Why Hereford? Uh, and he said that Unlike anywhere else in the world where he'd worked, and he'd worked in a lot of places, he could go about his business as a foreign taxi driver in our country, completely unmolested by the organs of state. And we project that through the way we behave across the world, through aid and security. And OK, that anecdote is only a tiny little thing, but it illustrates the much larger point about public service values and ethics that sometimes in the slightly old and cynical world we see as slightly cheesy sentiments. But I can tell you 
that openness, honesty, integrity, equality, those values are important and people like to hear them and they like to see them. That's such a good point. Um, And given your background in the military, I'm very interested in this relationship between the three Ds, kind of the defence, diplomacy and development. And obviously you've worked in Afghanistan and various other fragile states. So I'm interested in to see your views on how the three can work better together. Yeah, well, I I can tell you we've learned so much and so much has changed over the past 15 years or so. And uh, when I was a much younger officer in the Balkans or even in the early days of Afghanistan, so much was stovepiped. Um, by design and by culture and by ethos. Um, Defence worked in a separate space to diplomacy and diplomacy worked in a different space from development. Uh, and there was this notion that never, never th- these things should never meet. And it was utterly ineffective. Well, it was effective in its way if in various different environments. And we really had to work hard to break out of that linear and binary and everything separated by time and space and military people not being able to work with the developers. Uh, and all of that, it was it's a struggle, and it really still is a struggle in many respects, and some of that is cultural, some of it's familiarity. But fortunately, I think, in by and large, that sentiment's no longer the case, um, partly because the sense of that sort of um, security through neutrality and independence that developer aid and NGO community felt so strongly uh, has been eroded for all the wrong reasons in terms of violence um, and the way they've been targeted. But also because we in the military learn to our cost that you just can't forge peace and stability out of conflict without everything encompassing development, aid, trade and diplomacy, all in the same room, all in the same meeting, trying to forge some sort of unified approach to moving forwards. If you achieve it, you can really make a difference. If you work separately, you really don't. And Mm -hmm. so I think we've moved on and the approach is more mature and independent, but it takes an effort of will. And you have to recognise, and the various different establishments and agencies and organisations in this huge universe have to recognise that we're better off getting over the hump of our cultural perspectives and our lack of familiarity and working together to make this work. And I'm particularly interested in you know, fragile states. I mean, you've worked in countries like Afghanistan, and it's so difficult for us to understand here in Britain, but how can they transition from being sort of um, countries which have been through huge periods of conflicts or war and actually become functioning democracies with the rule of law and robust institutions. So how do you think that Britain can best help countries to do that? Well, well there's a couple of things. And again, this sort of flows very strongly from the world around us and our experience the past 15 to 20 years. I, I mean, look at the Balkans. We're still engaged in the Balkans. Um, for me, some of the great lessons here are strategic persistence and stamina and strategic patience. Uh, staying engaged as trusted partners for the long term. And, you know, those sort of values that we talked about before underpinning these things. And so understanding that they flow through our engagement uh, and the activities being targeted so that you can have strategic effect. And and making sure that we we lead by example. So if we're helping a country develop rule of law and governance and everything else, we breed in those values right from the outset, such that all of our efforts are strategic, all of our efforts are for the common good of all. And they're founded on this sort of common approach. And we demonstrate how government departments can work together in support of the people, which, you know, in some parts of the world, particularly in post-conflict areas and conflict areas, is something that's very alien. You know, the government is something that's done to the people, not for the people. We can work with them over the long term. And if there's nothing that we've learned in the past 10 years um, more, it's that short, sharp engagements to resolve conflicts are normally the beginning of the building the peace, not the end of it. Actually, that leads on very well to... the question I wanted to ask you about um, defence and development. And recently, a number of military voices have come out with this argument that they want to cut the aid budget to fund defence. But I'm interested to know what your views would be on that. You know, I I just 
find it immensely frustrating. Um, this sort of kind of negative zero-sum argument about you know, the one pot of money and you've got to rob each other to try and look after your own problems. Um, it's never one or the other. And, and by, by the way, I'd always tip into that diplomacy. You know, we talk about defence and development, but diplomacy is the glue that sticks it all together. It's the compass bearings. You've got to have both defence and diplomacy, and you've got to have defence and development. Robbing one to fund the other is the wrong exercise, technically, philosophically and morally. One of these legs on the three-legged stool just doesn't function without the other two. Um, they've got to function together in the same mix. These, these are the real hardcore lessons from our interventions of the past 20 years, uh, whether it be sort of at the heavy end of military engagement. Um, or whether it be towards the softer spectrum of long-term development. There's no doubt in my mind that if the aid budget wasn't ring-fenced in the way it was by law, it would be largely gone by now, one way or another. That sort of zero-sum, let's rob it to fund other things, whether it be the military things, would have decimated it, I'm fairly sure, in the past 10 years or so. So not only am I a huge supporter of making the arguments on their own case between defence and diplomacy, but I'd also say that ring-fencing the aid budget by law is, is a good thing. Mm, interesting. And how important do you think Britain's role is as a development leader in both doing what's right, but also in making the world safer, healthier and more prosperous for all of us? Um, It's something that perhaps around some of the arguments you see in the media that are sort of rather hyped up around, there's a vast amount of money in the aid budget and charity begins at home and then there's sort of defence versus development type discussions and everything else. Um, it, It tends to mask the huge amount of good work that's going on around the world. And this, this is, my comment's not made in the point of hubris or anything like that, but when it comes to engagement and conflict resolution before conflicts happen, upstream engagement, conflict prevention, all those sort of things, and all the things that we've talked so much about, about sort of lifting people out of poverty and these sort of things, there's no doubt about it that Britain, working with these sort of resources, is a global superpower. Not just because the resources give us strength, but because they're wielded deftly, irrespective of some of the dysfunctionality that's built into this um, in some areas and some of the questions about how you spend the money. But we're good at this. Uh, and as I, In my answer to the first question around the fact that we're great conveners, we're great team players, uh, we think very seriously and studiously about this. Through diplomacy, we've developed great understanding of the problem sets we're trying to deal with. Fuel that with really high-quality people working very carefully with governments and people and understanding the issues and resourcing it well in the way we do. It, we really have an effect really have a strategic effect around the world. And such an important point, because obviously the government has limited resources and clearly has to prioritise where the UK should focus our influence and resources, especially as they're spending taxpayer funding. So how important do you think it is that we spend money upstream to prevent conflict? Um, Well, again, I I would tell you as as an old soldier, as a retired soldier, having spent a lot of time in and around conflicts one way or another, a large portion of my life, many years spent thinking and working in conflict areas, that um, engaging the military to resolve conflicts um, is exquisitely expensive, not only in terms of money, but also in terms of blood. In every sense, upstream engagement to prevent conflicts is better in every sense. Um, It's cheaper. It almost certainly costs less lives. You can engage properly. Putting peace back together after a shooting war is pretty tough. Sustaining a fragile peace and making it more resilient is also tough, but it's not as tough as is, is fighting around it. So upstream engagement is really important. There's an issue here, though, in that upstream engagement by its nature is discretionary, um, whereas if you're sucked into a conflict, you're there, you have to deal with it. 
Um, and upstream engagement does cost some resource, and so decisions are made around it. And historians will point to myriad conflicts in the past where upstream engagement could have been effective, conflicts could have been prevented, and we chose not to. So there is a weakness in this sense that upstream engagement will solve all, pro- all our problems. It doesn't. You've got to be prepared to for upstream engagement either not to happen or to fail, and then engage with the security paradigm you're, dealt, you're, you're facing. Mm. And there's been quite a few challenges recently to the sort of international rules-based system. And given that you previously worked with NATO, I'd be interested to um, hear your views on what you think the roles of multilaterals are in today's world. Um, yeah, yes. Um, I mean, the multilaterals that we deal with today, NATO and the UN uh, and the like, and the sort of loose family of agencies and organisations that fell out of the post-Second World War period were largely a product of those two global conflicts within a living lifetime of 30-odd years. Um, and they were the res- sort of the macro response to trying to bring sort of lasting peace and stability in a framework to um, to encourage dialogue and trust and interaction. They weren't designed necessarily to be reactive in the way that people tend to see organisations like NATO. Uh, they're there to sustain the peace and sustain dialogue and keep nations working together and keep them interactive and cooperative. Of course, they have to evolve, and that's been some of the challenges, not just involve um, in a manifest way, in tangible way, but also evolve in terms of people's perceptions so they stay relevant. And, and, and you can see that they've had all, I think, had challenges in terms of persuading people that they are still relevant to the globe as it is today. Uh, and, uh, and they've all had to work hard on this, the UN, NATO, some of the others. But they remain really important, not only in terms of being able to react to what is going on around the world and be there as an insurance policy and security, whether it be NATO or the UN, um, uh, but they're also great conveners in their own right that bring nations together um, to sit and talk to each other. Because if you're in the same room talking to each other, then it's much harder to break down the trust than if you're not. Mm. And today we face so many different threats from Britain. I'm thinking particularly of things like the increase of cyber attacks. I mean, what do you think Britain needs to do to tackle the myriad of different threats that we face today in an ever increasingly complex world? Well, I, I would say we're not doing badly at it um, right now. Uh, and there have been some great innovations in recent years that make us better at it. And as an example, I'd point to um, the creation of the National Security Council, the post of the National Security Advisor, uh, that really brings government departments together in, a, in, a, in an organised and strategic way uh, to examine threats. They're supported by an intelligence committee that looks through this and brings in the work of the diplomacy around the world to understand the threats that emerge and to horizon scan and then work out how to react. And if you look at the way um, we're reacting to the cyber threats with the National Cyber Centre and the way that that's been dealt with in terms of not just defence and security but industry, um, you can see that things are changing. Now, people would always argue it's too late and it's not enough and these things are hugely expensive and require resources and things like that. But um, the, the country, I think, is demonstrating that by and large it understands the threats and is reacting to it. My, my issue here is is that to really understand the threats, you've got to have this network of global diplomacy, um, and it's got to be resourced, and it's got to be out there. We have fabulous people in the Foreign Office scattered around the world, but in the past 10 to 15 years, I've seen some really important areas squeezed. And, uh, and w- w- where our diplomacy has shrunk or disappeared off the map, the chances are that you, you'll, the chances are you'll find a conflict emerging there somewhere. So a strong, robust, well-tuned network of sensors around the world engaging every single day over the long term to understand the globe, understand the threats and risks, and allowing us back here to react to them in the, in the, in the proper way. Mm, that's such an important point about diplomacy. 
And it makes me think about, you know, HMG has got different assets that we can deploy. And what do you think of this whole debate about hard versus soft power? Well, again, it comes back to that three-legged stool of defence development and diplomacy, if you like. And, and it's that sort of, again, it's just, in certain hands, it's a zero-sum argument. It's sort of you're either hard or you're soft and everything else. And there's also echoes of one of the other questions I answered earlier about the fact that we're no longer operating in spaces. You don't have a humanitarian space and a development space and a security space uh, with firewalls between them. You have to work in the mix together. Um, you have to collaborate together. You have to bring your perspectives together um, to look at the problems together, to understand them. And the sense that you know, soft power is something that's wielded in one particular dimension with no hard power attached. Well, there's a sliding scale here in certain circumstances. You, you would see an awful lot of soft power uh, wielded around the world with minimal hard power present. But it's, it's just not a separatable thing. It's mm -hmm. a sliding scale. It's, neither, it's not, never not one nor the other. It's, it's always a combination, depending on the context and depending on the problem set in hand. And lastly, I'd just like to finish by asking you, I started off at the beginning saying, you know, what does global Britain mean to you? But I wanted to close with what would you like global Britain to mean for the government? Yeah, I, I, I would love to see it more prominent in our national narrative. It's already there, but as we have all know, it's subsumed slightly by the um, strategic issues in hand, such as Brexit. Um, and we're way too hampered, I think, by some sense of post-colonial guilt around the discussion around global Britain. Uh, and sometimes it's seen purely in a slightly selfish trade and economics point of view, what's good for Britain. Um, but as I think I said right at the start, um, internationalism is good for Britain and Britain is good for the globe. Uh, I would like to see it part of our strongly part of our political narrative. I'd like to see our political leadership leading the nation to be internationalist. I'd like to see our um, organs of state resourced well, um, uh, alongside all the other competing priorities, of course. Uh, diplomacy, defence, development. Uh, I'd like to see our embassies empowered across the world. Um, and I'd like to see us really actively going at in a very fused and organised way, aid, trade, diplomacy, development, economics, education, culture, you name it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today. And tune in to our next podcast, which will be coming up. Many thanks for joining us, Phil. 